0: Thank you for joining us today for our second episode of the Mainly Matters Nonprofit Report. I'm Jared McCannell, your host for today, October 8th, 2021. We have a special show for you today with our guest and local nonprofit leader, Julia Schultz, from the Rockland-based nonprofit, Speaking Place. Before we start our conversation with Julia about the amazing work Speaking Place is doing locally and around the world, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that Maine has a vibrant and active nonprofit sector that we could dedicate a show every day of the year to a different nonprofit or community organization and still have enough material for a few seasons. Uh, when developing this segment for Mainly Matters, we had originally thought of a nonprofit news segment. Nevertheless, the timing, excuse me, the, nevertheless the timely nature of news and the lasting digital life of a podcast may not be the most effective way to inform our audience about what's really happening in the sector. With that said, we'll be highlighting a different nonprofit each show as our main feature. The good work of these organizations is best said in their own words. So please join me in welcoming our first Mainly Matters Nonprofit Spotlight guest, Julia Schulz, co-director of Rockland's very own Speaking Place. Welcome Julia, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Jared, I'm happy to be here.
0: Great, well, you've been a nonprofit leader, uh, or excuse me, you've been working in nonprofit leadership for many years, which I'd love to get into in a moment. But first and foremost, tell me about Speaking Place.
1: Yeah, well, Speaking Place is a nonprofit founded in Maine, uh, based in Rockland. Uh, We founded in 2010. Um, But the work actually goes back 50 years (laughs) because uh, my co director, Ben Levine, has been a documentary filmmaker for all of those years. And uh, I have been a language educator, and I'm the co founder of Penobscot Bay Language School in 1986. (laughs) So, uh, So the work goes goes way back. I could tell you a little bit more about Speaking Place. It's really a community driven organization for video um, documentation, community documentation. And it's a kind of approach to documentary filmmaking that is community based. So that's the, in the broadest sense, that's what
0: we do. Great. Um, And what's your mission?
1: We're really trying to give voice to to community members. And it's, It has to do primarily with endangered language documentation, Mm -hmm. but it extends to other issues that the community faces.
0: Great. Uh, I noticed on the website, one of the the issues cited was public health. How does public health fit into the work you do?
1: Well, some of it goes back many, many years in the work that Ben has been doing. And he originally was trained as a clinical psychologist. And so that has entered into his documentary filmmaking. Uh, but more recently, uh, one of the projects that Speaking Place took on was a series of videos to help train uh, medical staff. Through oh. The Hanley Foundation, wow. Daniel Hanley Foundation. So, uh, so, you know, one of them was on um, mental health. One was on addiction. Uh, another one was about they were all about health disparities. And so that's one example of, of video work that we've done in communities
0: now. And this is working within. The languages spoke within those communities. As far as the health work,
1: uh, the health work was was really not related to oh, language. Okay. Yeah, it, no. it's more a question of, you know, I think that the the underlying principle, if you will, is the uh, um, giving people a chance to speak for themselves. So it's not so much as as an old partner of Ben's, Howard Gutstadt said, it's not so much telling stories it's giving people the tools to tell their own stories wow, okay. to to express themselves and and that could be within health mm-hmm. about health disparities in in healthcare today and how to address those kinds of issues or it could be about um endangered language uh and, and language loss cultural loss
0: yeah so in a sense it's really advocacy
1: indeed yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Using video and um, giving people tools to make changes that they agree upon and mm-hmm. want to take on.
0: Well, that's great. Um, and you were founded in, was it 2010? So
1: Speaking Place 2010. Okay. Yep.
0: But this work has been going on for a long time. That's right. what I get the impression of. Yes. Great. Yeah. Great. Uh, and what was the catalyst for the for this project to take form in the first place in 2010? We'll say when when it went from yeah. the informal work happening for a long time to right that, that moment.
1: So it actually you have to go back really to I think 1999, which is when Ben and I teamed up to lead a series of showings of films made in Quebec in. Waterville at Railroad Square Cinema. So this was a, what we called the Franco-American Film Festival.
0: And- I actually remember that. that I don't was... know if you
1: were there or you ever <laughs> came to any showings. I or...
0: wasn't there, but I, uh, I remember it well because I was living at home and I lived in Pittsfield. At the time I just graduated high school, was taking a gap year so I could travel and oh. learn language and study. Yeah. And I remember because uh, that's our movie theater. You yeah, know, uh, in, yeah, In Central Maine, that's where most of us go. Right. Um, and I distinctly remember a French festival right after high school. And so that's wow. great.
1: <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. And I know
0: we have a common friend, Linda Der Simonian.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: yeah. was behind that in many ways, correct? And,
1: well, she she started attending the, the film showings. And what we did when we showed a film from Quebec, which we're all in French, you know, with English subtitles, mm. we would have a discussion in the theater, mm. which Ben facilitated. And we often filmed those discussions. And that was a chance for people to bring out any sort of memories mm. or stories or emotions or questions doubts that came up and to talk to each other and it was largely franco-american audience mm-hmm. and it was very exciting for us to see the kinds of responses that people had and people like linda would come week after week it was saturday mornings yeah. and and i being the french profe- you know french teacher french language teacher i thought oh well people who who know a little French are going to want to have some kind of French conversation. And I kept announcing that, and no one answered my call until Linda came forward and she said, I want to get my French back. No kidding. And that started a whole whole chain of events. We had gatherings at her house. She invited other people who wanted to see if the French that they had gained as children Mm -hmm. but was hidden now from them could come back, could Mm -hmm. come back to life. And so we started doing these classes, which we end up calling um, language reacquisition, French reacquisition, yeah. and that um, showed us a lot of different, uh, you know, very important things. We learned a lot from the Francos in Waterville-Winslow area, mm-hmm. um, including the power of video, of film, mm-hmm. and discussion. And um, we began to realize something about brain development. And we were, we were researching this new idea about uh, the development of child, of of the brain in, in a child. Mm -hmm. And that is that if you heard a language as a young child, your brain has developed the structures Mm -hmm. to understand and to produce that language. And if that's the case, if it's like hardwired, Mm -hmm. you can't lose that. Even Mm -hmm. if you don't use the language for 20, 30, 40 years. And that was proven by the people in Waterville who would tell me, oh, I don't speak French anymore. Mm -hmm. And then given a little bit of encouragement Mm -hmm. and a French language environment and a chance to express themselves about perhaps some kind of trauma or Mm -hmm. not, or just lack of use, they were starting to speak French again. And that was huge for for us.
0: And I think that really illustrates that language is more than just communication. The cultural aspect is what makes it a human endeavor. <laughs> and so, like you said, the people that's, Oh, I don't speak French. My, my Nana, um, Margaret Abe, uh, was a, a French speaking child, uh, but was quickly told and taught to not speak French. Right. Um, she's, she's a little bit older than than Linda's generation, not much, but you know, of of a, the same kind of cut of historical society where we were trying to whitewash a lot of, um, immigrants coming in or uh, quote unquote, making them more American by shedding their, uh, their heritage languages. Uh-huh. And that's, that was a cultural phenomenon that happened all over the country. The yeah. same, the same period you were having uh, Mexican Americans and Chicanos who were being told they could not speak Spanish in Californian schools or around the country in different places. Right. Uh, so that's, that's a phenomenon that we see all over the country, but it really hits home here in Maine.
1: Right. Right. Well, we saw it in Waterville, and this was something I had observed in the St. John Valley, in mm. the Acadian regions, mm-hmm. as, a, as a student, That's as a college student, up, because I, <laughs> I spent a summer in Senegal, and mm-hmm. I did a little research project up there for college. Yeah. So that was the first time I had heard anyone say, I don't speak good French. Mm-hmm. I don't speak the right kind of French. Mm-hmm. I've been told my French is no good, or that it's slang or gibberish. And I never had heard anything like that before. Mm-hmm. But I, I started to hear it, that was in 1980. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that was already kind of in my in my head that mm-hmm. there is a feeling about Maine French not being correct somehow, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was played out in Waterville as yeah. people began to explore this
0: question. Well, it's but it empowering out, to give someone back their well, yeah, heritage.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I think that was one thing that kept us going was the joy that we saw in people when they started to speak and they exchanged and they could be understood and then they could laugh together. Mm-hmm. And and I was so privileged to be a part of that rediscovery. And a lot of those stories end up in the documentary film mm-hmm. that Ben made called Réveil, Waking mm-hmm. Up French, which came, came out in 2003. And Great
0: film, still has a
1: life of <laughs> its own. You can It's online for order as a DVD, wakingupfrench.com. And I sold a copy yesterday. I mean, it's 20 years later, it's still having a big impact. Still relevant. Um, But what I want to say, and this I think brings us back to Speaking Place, is that phenomenon of people feeling uh, that they're not allowed to speak their language. They've been, their language and culture have been put down, suppressed, either, uh, you know, systematically by government forces, schools, or by parents having experienced shame and punishment in schools and not wanting their kids to go through that, mm-hmm. or economic factors or whatever the reasons. Mm-hmm. It's not just a main phenomenon, it's not just the US, it's all over the world. Mm-hmm. So when we went to, when we are invited to, to Mexico to do the same kind of work we had been doing here in Maine, working with people who are trying to understand language loss and revitalization, Trying to create tools to help them revitalize and maintain their languages. They had the same kinds of stories. Mm. Parents in this one town where we worked, um, we've been working since 2009, Totontepec in the Sierra parents had to pay a fine, a cash fine, if their children were caught using their indigenous language, Ayoke wow. in school. Well, these parents this is the 1950s, 1960s. Mm-hmm. They didn't have cash. Mm-hmm. They didn't even have a road to the village until 1978. So this was not a place that had a cash economy. Mm-hmm. So you can start to imagine the burden of having to pay a fine if your child, well, of course, you're going to start to speak Spanish at home. It just It's, it's a natural yeah. phenomenon. <clears throat> so What we've learned over these years of working with people is these same kinds of stories um, have uh, occurred in so many communities all over the world.
0: Mm -hmm. My own experience uh, traveling, studying, living in Spain uh, was something very similar in terms of I went there. I had no idea that there were five languages on the Iberian Peninsula or more, actually. Um, But within Spain, you've got Castellano, which we call Spanish. Yep. You also have Catalan, which yep. is what they speak in Barcelona and Catalonia.
1: Sure.
0: Um, you've got a dialect of Catalan, Valenciano, which they claim is a different language, but yeah. linguists might argue they're very similar. <laughs> you've got Gallego, which is what... Oh, um, I know. Spoken in Galicia, yeah. uh, which is the mother tongue of Portuguese. It's yeah. actually referred to as old Portuguese. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, you have Basque, Basquiat, yeah. right? Which is the... the one of the only non-Indo-European languages in Europe, so it has no roots with any other European languages. Um, I think Finnish and Hungarian are also in that category for non-Indo-European. Well,
1: they have, yeah, maybe non-Indo-European, but they are part of a family, you know, Ugric, yeah. They are part of a language family, but Basque is not.
0: (laughs) Okay, so yeah. Yeah. And and so I know that um, during the, the regime of Franco, After the Spanish Civil War, um, there was political pressure, not to mention societal and cultural pressure, to have everyone speak Spanish. And it was mandated. Yeah. You know, so no longer were governments allowed to run in their native tongues, you know, and so they had to do all government business in Spanish, schools were in Spanish, and essentially wiped away most of those languages to the point where most of them are dying languages Mm -hmm. until recently where they've started to make a resurgence. Very much so, yeah. Um, But that has its own, you know, process as well and and outcomes. Um, So could you tell me a little bit about the work in Mexico? Um, Sure. Did you, just tell me about it. Well, I have to go,
1: I have to, I've got a, there's a missing piece in the chronology here. Um, So the Frank, if the work with Franco-Americans and Acadians, French speakers in Maine, uh, began around that time of that film festival. So that went on 99 and 2000. And then... Uh, then Ben's film came out, Prévet, Waking Up French, and we, we've shown that in community settings all over New England, Louisiana, in Paris, at the Sorbonne. Uh, it's been used in schools and so on. Well, we showed it here in Rockland at the Farnsworth Museum. I think it was part of, it might have been part of CIF. I can't even remember the date. Mm-hmm. And who was in the audience but a Passamaquoddy family? So mm-hmm. this was Alan Saka-Basin, um, the late Alan Saka-Basin. A very strong Passamaquoddy speaker, singer, musician, language advocate. And he came up to Ben and said, You know, we have the same issues going on in our community. We're losing our language, we're losing our culture. Can you make a documentary film about Passamaquoddy culture?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Ben said he would do that. And they started working together and they started filming. And along around that time, we noticed an RFP from the National Science Foundation in their program documenting endangered languages. Mm. So neither Ben nor I—we're we're not linguists, mm-hmm. you know—we don't have any background, professional background in linguistics, or academic background, and we're not affiliated with any universities yes. <laughs> or government entities. Or you know, we're really independent, and uh, we saw this and thought, well. Probably it's not for us, but Ben made the inquiry to the program officer, and we applied and we were funded mm-hmm. to do the first video documentation of spoken Passamaquoddy.
0: Now that that project got a lot bigger.
1: Yeah, yeah. so yes. that's been that, that started in two thousand five,
0: two thousand six. And you've helped create a really amazing resource online. Could you tell us a little bit about it's the Passamaquoddy Maliseet. Language portal. Language portal.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that came a bit later. So we started out by using
0: video with
1: groups in just ordinary conversational settings. Mm -hmm. And that kind of broadened because what we figured out was we needed to work with a facilitator. So we, we started developing our methods for language documentation so that we would get true natural conversation, Mm -hmm. not not elicitation, which, Mm -hmm. you know, was another way of language documentation used by linguists. Mm -hmm. This is much more uh, fluid, it's much more informal, it's much more spontaneous, and getting back to sort of the principle of speaking place, it's Mm community-driven. So the facilitator decides who's gonna be in the conversation, where it's gonna take place, pretty much what they're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And the facilitator brings people back into the language if they veer off into English, which is bound to happen mm-hmm. in a language that's not being used mm-hmm. that much. Mm-hmm. So we were doing the video documentation and we created a series of DVDs of the different conversations with subtitles in English mm-hmm. or Passamaquoddy or no subtitles so that you could use it as a learning tool as mm-hmm. well, learning and teaching tool. Uh, uh, meanwhile, the um the speakers in the tribe had been working with Robert Levitt. So this was David Francis, especially Robert Levitt and uh, Margaret Abt, to create a dictionary of Passamaquoddy McGuady mm-hmm. And that dictionary had gone online very early on in the days of the internet. So there was this online dictionary, but it couldn't talk to the DVDs. Mm-hmm. So we were able to create a portal, and this is thanks to the software developers at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. Mm-hmm. And Robert Levitt had been a professor there and had run the Maliseet-McMack Institute there. They designed this portal, which connects the video database with the dictionary database. Mm -hmm. So that when you're watching a video and listening to Passamaquoddy conversation, if there's a word that's highlighted in the subtitle, you can click on that word and that will take you directly to the entry for that word in the Passamaquoddy Maliseed Mm -hmm. Online Dictionary. So you get the entry page, you get other keywords that are related to it, um, some grammatical information. And then uh, now there's a third database um, which is audio recordings of pronunciation of that word mm-hmm. and example sentences with that word. Oh, I listened to them all last word. night.
0: <laughs> you did? <laughs> yeah. All right, so you know, I now. was I was practicing saying "hello, how are you?" in Pashto. Don Gok? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot a moment right now, again, thank you. Yeah. No, um, so that was. Uh, it's a really amazing resource, and for anyone, whether. You're trying to recover lost language, or you just have an interest in the people of Maine mm. and want to really explore some of the cultural aspects that, that predate uh, the Anglo occupation of Maine.
1: French, because <laughs> it was initially
0: French. Yes. Yeah. Oh no, true. I, I'm jumping yeah. right ahead to to, European, to, to after yeah. you know after the, the Franco-American heritage loss here in Maine. So I'm oh, making a huge oh. leap, but yes.
1: <laughs> no, but I'm glad you, you said that because I really feel that the Passamaquoddy Maliseet language portal is, is a window into this incredibly rich language and culture of Passamaquoddy Maliseet people. Mm-hmm. And it's spoken in their own words. And mm-hmm. so when you hear it, And then when you explore one word or one expression, and that takes you into another expression, another word, you're gaining so much knowledge about the culture. It's just beautiful. It's incredibly rich. So that's um, just to give people, you know, the actual URL. It's pmportal.org.
0: pmportal.org. Great. Yeah. And you can also find it through the Speaking Place website.
1: Yes, you can. And it's... um, it's just a fascinating resource. And people who are trying to learn Passamaquoddy or trying to teach it are using it all the time. Wow. And linguists use it because um, it has so many examples of, of word use in, yeah. in context. So in a whole sentence, mm-hmm. in a conversation back and forth. And because there's video, you have all the facial expressions and you have the gestures and yeah. so on that go with it. And you have the environment. I mean. They're, they're, we started out, I would have to say, because we were all new at this, our Passamaquoddy facilitators and speakers were all new at this, mm-hmm. and we were feeling our way. And the, the initial ones we did are a little stiff. We're, you know, the group is kind of sitting in chairs outside. And gradually, as people heard what was going on and they saw how much fun it can be and how important it can be, mm-hmm. especially for the older speakers to speak to younger speakers, you know, who are learning. We got invited to go to all these interesting places. So we got invited to go out and pick cranberries in a in a bog. Mm. We got invited to go musk, muskrat trapping and, and fiddlehead, picking fiddleheads. I think when Ben went out with his camera, they had to blindfold him because they didn't want him to, <laughs> to know where the fiddleheads were. But, you know, um, so you not only see the people and their gestures, the way they talk to each other, the way they express themselves with their bodies. Uh, but you're getting the environment at the same time mm. and this language within that. So it's a, it's a whole package and it's really very, very beautiful.
0: No, I, I love it. Um, I'm, it reminds me of a, a sentence that uh, a Spanish teacher told me years ago, which was uh, language and culture are synonymous, you can't have one without the other. And it was a simple phrase, simple idea, simple concept. Yeah. Uh, but that concept really changed the way I approached my own language learning. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, it, and it really gave uh, context to why immersion is so much more effective in learning. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. And then, you know, there's a number of other uh, lessons that are kind of wrapped up in that as well, mm-hmm. because you start to look at culture and you think, oh, well, dance, food, so on and so forth language is wrapped up in all of those too um, in a number of ways
1: well yeah and I think yes I I agree with everything you're saying and I think actually it makes it easier to learn the language if you have the cultural context because you have an association mm-hmm. with that word and that idea you remember the person or you remember the place or the taste mm-hmm. or the smell of something and um there was a, a, a wonderful French teacher who worked here and her, she loved to have chocolate melting on the stove in her class so that so that students would you know associate learning <laughs> French with this wonderful smell. Oh,
0: that's that's clever. And, <laughs> anyway, um
1: you know melted chocolate is uh it, it fits with French culture, yeah, I would say. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. No, that's
0: great. Um well I've got a few more questions I'd love sure. to to get back to here. Um, you've mentioned a few people you work with, but who are your coworkers?
1: Well, um, really, it's a small base. And what we're doing all the time is working with partners. Mm-hmm. So on any given project, there may be, you know, I don't know, um, uh, a team. There's usually a team within the community mm-hmm. that, that includes all the facilitators. There's a, langui- a linguist if we're doing language documentation, Um, And then we're always showing back. So they are all the people who participated, who come and watch the videos, and then we'll show it to the whole community. So it's kind of an ever-widening circle. Um, And I would say what's happening, if you want to get into kind of where we're at now, I don't know if you're ready for that. (laughs)
0: Let's do it. (laughs) Okay.
1: Where we're at now is um, a couple of, Processes that go together. One is uh, trying to share what we have gained, all the, the everything that we've learned from people like Linda, all the people you know, Margaret Apt and David Francis, and all the people that we've worked with in the Franco community in in Maine and New Brunswick with Passamaquoddy and Malisee people, and then in Mexico, I haven't talked too much about the indigenous communities of Mexico that we've worked with, but trying to turn over what we've learned to the communities. So mm. there's this kind of indigenizing process going on. I think it's going on in lots of nonprofits and mm. and, and profit-making organizations as well. Yeah. Um, but for us, it's really important now to be able to step back and turn over the leadership and make sure that it's really Truly, in the hands of the people who have been participating and are benefiting from and actually using the materials, make yeah. sure they have everything that they that they need. That we have um, helped to create, but and we've been sending it out. But now this is a more definitive process, and the, along with that is um, identifying younger, mm-hmm. <laughs> talented people who want to take up this work, mm. and that's that's so exciting to be able to turn some of these language projects over, yeah. uh, to, and, and documentary filmmaking and, uh, you know, presentation work and working in communities, language revival work, building those tools for language revival, turning that over to young people who are really motivated to keep it going. Yeah. So, well, um, so the, the, the web of people working on these things is quite large, mm-hmm. even though our base in Rockland is small.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you'll have plenty of success moving forward in terms of recruiting folks, because I know people are really interested in this and people are really passionate about, um, recovering language, uh, preserving languages that are being lost. Yeah. Um, whether it's recovering your heritage language, something mm-hmm. like French in Maine where French is still spoken widely around the world. One of the, still one of the most popular languages worldwide. Sure. Um, but the French that's spoken here in Maine is reflective of our community our culture in this part of the world whether you're re- trying to reconnect with those heritage roots or if you have an interest in helping other communities preserve language uh, I mentioned my own interest in in Spain yeah I've done a lot of research on, on the Basque language out of interest so yes there are people out there who would absolutely pick up a mantle on this work I think
1: yeah I think you're right I think you're right and it, we're getting a lot more press about language endangerment and in fact this statistic is repeated a lot that there are six thousand some languages in the world Mm -hmm. and half of them could be gone by the next 25 50 years so there are lots of lots of steps being taken uh in so many places and various ways to try to reverse that trend including the united nations declaring a decade of international indigenous languages starting next year. Okay. So this is going to bring a lot of attention to this question of indigenous language. Why would you try to maintain an indigenous language, which people don't necessarily all agree on. You know, yeah, you have to yeah. realize that there are people out there saying, oh, well, this is, this is just part of life and progress and these languages are going to disappear. Uh, but I don't happen to think that that's a good way to think about it because indigenous languages have in themselves so much knowledge and so much important uh, history and culture and Mm -hmm. and traditional practice. And we can learn so much from these languages. And and not to mention your own identity when you're able to speak your language, which goes back to what you were saying before about people in Waterville Mm -hmm. recovering their lost, lost in quotes, language, and what that gives them a new sense of self an ability to speak to other people in that language, to enjoy, Uh, you know, the richness that comes with having that access to that culture.
0: I think anyone that's pursuing better understanding their own history, culture, roots, I think that process, once you get into it, it's very rewarding and, you know, it's very empowering. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, thinking of my grandmother again, um, you know, her parents only spoke French. Her siblings and she, except for maybe a couple of the older siblings, Only spoke English after school, after they started school. Yes. And whether you're losing a heritage language that's still widely spoken or you're losing a heritage language that is endangered, the process of losing it is very similar. And the process of gaining it back, you know, there are some advantages with some languages than others. You know, we have a French dictionary, you know, that's a great starting point for recovering French language in Maine. Mm. If you don't have those resources, you know, then, then it's a lot harder to recover that language. So whether you're personally recovering your own heritage through that experience or you're working in that space uh, to preserve language in general, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's a personal or a collective uh, process, it's rewarding for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And and there are people who come at, for example, the Passamaquoddy Malisee language from different Points of view. So there, there are people within that community who would like to be able to speak and understand. And I noticed, I'm going to as jump a heritage there, language,
0: that you have multiple examples of the words on the portal um, with different speakers. So the examples are read by different speakers, and you can hear different accents. Of course, you know, and uh, yeah. and that was one thing I noticed right away. Oh, good. And uh, I enjoyed that. I thought it was a great yeah uh, addition to have multiple voices.
1: Yes. And of course, in the videos, you have you have I think there are 75 speakers. Wow. So you have a wide range of age and, of course, gender. And, um, But people also come at a language uh, from other interests. I was saying not just a personal heritage, but, <clears throat> for example, um, ethnobotany, you know, medicinal um, plants, people who are interested in um, in very scientific aspect, that want to understand the knowledge that's contained in that language. So one example of this that we were able to pursue in, in Mexico, in that village of Totontepec in the Sierra Mique was um, again, with national science foundation funding, we documented the whole corn planting cycle. Hmm. So there were four trips throughout a year to Use video to document the farmers as they were planting their corn. And the reason was that corn has been found to be some of the most nutritious corn in the world. Hmm. And it's planted and cultivated on these extremely steep slopes hmm. where they get a lot of rain. And so uh, UC Davis geneticists were interested in that corn because of its nutritional value and because of its resistance to things like flooding mm-hmm. and, and cold temperatures. And, you know, it's pretty high mountains, 6,000 feet. And so um, so they had a contract with the town to study the molecular structure of this corn. Hmm. But when we were there, we asked them, well, have you ever really talked to the farmers in their own language, in yeah. ayok No. Well, we've never done that before. Mm -hmm. So our plan was to put uh, a linguist from, you know, a a, a linguist who'd been studying the language, a local linguist, the farmers and the videographer Ben together to go out in the fields Mm -hmm. and record the farmers talking Mm -hmm. about how they prepare the fields. How do they plant? How do they cultivate? What kind of irrigation? And all kinds of wonderful things came out of this, mm. including they were irrigating their corn in the middle of a rainstorm. And no one had ever talked about why they were doing that. And there's all kinds of other um, actual you know, scientific data that came out of this, including new experiments that UC Davis geneticists were going to run. And wow. So it's very, very interesting. You know, it
0: reminds me of a, a recent Clip I heard on NPR and it was talking. It's in the the Pacific Northwest, um, and I'm unsure of the uh, of which indigenous group it might have been because I didn't pick up the whole program. But what they're doing is going out into the woods and talking about all the different medicinal medicinal plants and heritage foods, things that yeah. people just don't eat that have been eaten for centuries. Right. From, Um, and all of that is in indigenous language. A lot of that we don't have English names for, or we might have a Latin scientific varietal name, but it's not necessarily pegged as a medicinal plant. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, there's so much wrapped up in that language. I'm going to jump to my, one of my final questions. Um, well, I have two, we've got a couple of minutes here, not much, but I, I do want to just ask, you've talked a little bit about it, but we didn't name it yet. And that is community self-documentation. Yes. And so you've already described that process quite a bit in our discussion, but could you just give a little more context? Thank you. Yes.
1: Yeah. So we originally started doing the documentation ourselves with facilitators, as I described a bit, but what we realized, and that was in the town in Mexico is that um, people in their own town wanted to do this themselves. Mm -hmm. They wanted to learn the techniques. They wanted to have the equipment to be able to do the language documentation For their own community. And that makes so much sense because they know the language or they're learning the language or relearning it. They have a connection to the culture, they know the people, and they're there, you know, instead of outsiders having to come in and try to work with people. So we have done this several times now, trained small groups of of, uh, language documentation um, uh, leaders in their communities. And some have, they've all been trained in camera work. Um, in Totontepec, uh, one young woman, Maria Elena, took on video editing, and she became a great video editor. Okay. And of course, she knows the language, so she doesn't have to wait for a translation. She knows where the sentences stop and the new ones start. You know, mm. she, she can, manipulate the the video um beautifully so it's all the more creative person exactly yeah and um and then so the the next iteration of that was the people that we had trained in totontepec specifically maria elena and saul um two leaders in self-documentation became trainers in something we call Tavico, which is the taller de video comunitario de Oaxaca, <laughs> uh, so it's a Oaxaca community video workshop, uh, which in in which we invited teams from six different indigenous communities within Oaxaca state. So mm. two from each community scaling up, and they came to the city of Oaxaca. We're working with the university there, Oaxaca, um, and. And Saul and Marielena were two of the trainers because they had the skills to pass on. And they they're great. You know, they're fantastic. And what a wonderful thing to be able to do. And we have a coordinator there who's so connected to all the indigenous communities. He's an educator and Mm -hmm. uh, Salvador Galindo. And he and so we had a team. We had a teaching team that that led these Oaxaca video Community video workshops, and what we're teaching is auto-documentation de la comunidad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's self-documentation. self-documentation of the community, where a person from that community can learn the skills and have the equipment to document language and conversation and cultural practices for his or her own community and, and for, share that with the community.
0: And for documentarians, uh, that's a different approach. That's that's something a little bit for, and I think for a lot of folks that have been making documentary films yeah. for a long time, often it is go in and observe and, and record or, or you know, capture what you're seeing, but you're, not necess- you're still looking in from the outside. Yeah. Whereas if you know, that, that is coming from within the community, again, it's all the more authentic. I do have to wrap it up here for this episode in a moment, but let me just ask one final question, okay. which is, it's a two-part question. Um, what keeps you coming back? and what excites you about the future?
1: Oh, well, uh, I think the people keep me coming back. The people we've been able to work with and the the opportunity for learning, for personal growth and personal enrichment on my part, and, and then being able to share it with people and to see the people we work with take up the methods and, and adapt them to their own communities, and their own situation, and give it back to their communities. Mm-hmm. And to see that response, so there's this kind of chain of events that happen that starts with an invitation to us, mm-hmm. comes from them, and we're able to give it back and they enrich it so much more. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most thing, the most um, exciting and enriching thing for me. That's fantastic. And then um, what's for the future? Well, I just want to mention one thing that we're quite excited about right now. Um, we, in Speaking Place is the fiscal sponsor for a short documentary film that has just been completed, and it's called The Intersection, Le Carrefour, and it runs 30 minutes, and it was funded primarily by the Camden International Film Festival, Points North Institute, and TV5Monde, so this is a French broadcast uh, entity, and... Also, the Maine Humanities Council and several and the Alliance Française du Maine and the French Teachers Association. It just premiered at CIF at the Camden International Film Festival and it won an award. It won the uh, that's fantastic. Audience Award for mm-hmm. Best Document Best Short Documentary.
0: That's so really that's
1: amazing. that's our newest news. And uh I'm quite excited about that as an example of the kind of work that we want to be doing that is uh, helping younger, you know, talented, motivated people to do really good work, um, in documenting languages, documenting communities, community self-documentation, and the other kinds of work that we've initiated.
0: Well, I'm excited. I, uh, I've seen the website a few times, but it's so nice to hear in your words, um, because it sounds like everything you're doing is just fantastic, very needed, uh, certainly appreciated around the world, and it will be for many, many years, I think is uh, this legacy that you've created starts to live on. And I'm excited for the future for you because I think you've got a really great foundation for some really amazing work. And uh, as uh, someone who's dedicated their life to nonprofits <laughs> and languages, I just wanna say thank you.
1: Thank you, Jared. Absolutely. Thank you. And, and we welcome inquiries from people. We have a website, speakingplace.org, and we're on Facebook and Instagram and people can find us and we'd love to hear um, questions, comments. Um, we, we appreciate any uh, offers of support or volunteer work as all
0: nonprofits do. Of course. <laughs> so
1: thank you very much for this opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for listening. We're going to wrap it up for this episode, but we'll be back in a few short days with another episode. So thank you for listening to Mainly Matters Nonprofit Report.